Let's Roll. This is Counter Charge, your podcast for ranks, flanks, and kings of war. as they delve into the world of Panathor and bring you worldwide coverage of all things Kings of War. Welcome to Counter Charge. I'm Rafa Nuff. I'm Tom Annis. And I'm Jeremy Duvall. Welcome. Excited today to have Rob and one of the scrying gems, uh, fresh with the polish of having competed yet again, another U.S. Masters Bringing filth, Mr. Tom Annis. How are you doing, Tom? Oh, I'm doing great. Do excited to do a uh, Masters postmortem. Question that everybody has, Tom, is when are you going to make this the South team? <gasps> yeah, well, I don't know. I I am the top Northeast player in the country right now, uh-huh. so you got to wear I'll that. You got to wear with that with pride, my, next... my friend. <laughs> exactly. It was funny sitting at Masters uh, lunch time everybody were sitting like school tables you know like the little round ones and all the different regions were sitting with each other and and britain made a really funny comment he was like it's like a prison gang in here it's like just waiting for someone to to say (laughs) something at the wrong wrong table (laughs) right exactly so it's who you click up with as they say in 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 the big house you know the west coast you know they'll back up the pacific northwest the south will back up the southeast and then we're going to be like have some snapping like the jets west side story i'll be on whatever side dustin howard's on in that fight i think that's probably a good that just makes sense if they say rob dustin would be like mr big in in prison he's definitely gonna be mr big and tom tom will be holding his pocket yeah (laughs) Yeah, dustin will be your blade of armor just be behind him there's no shame there i'll definitely be doing that Well, we're excited to have Tom on the episode today. A unique little episode we're going to do. We're going to be taking a little deeper, you know, as Tom mentioned, a sort of post-mortem of the U.S. Masters, looking at some trends, talking about some interesting games, and just looking at Masters as a whole to try to, like, what can we sort of gleam off of uh, these results? You know, Tom is always... Always happy to have Tom take part in the Scrying Gems, which is always our, our pre-master show, right, Tom? Where we talk strategies, we talk meta, we talk lists. So this is going to be interesting to sort of, we've done that on the way in, and now we're going to sort of look at that little bit of analysis on the way out. Yeah, and I'm uh, I'm having a bunch of people in the community help me with doing actual stats and, and things, and so we're going to share some of that tonight. Before we get into this current Masters, let's take a look at, our previous masters, you know, the first Kings of War masters was in 2017. So including Luke Frazier, we've had seven Kings of War US masters. Before we get into this here, Tom, what sort of stands out at you when you're when you're looking back through tw- from 2017 to 2023? What stands out at you? Who we've seen win masters, factions? Let's start there. One of the interesting things is with Trident Realm winning this year uh there has not been a single repeat faction uh, that's repeated as as the master faction if you if you will it's been undead with some goblin allies the first year in 2017 that was patrick zora allen it was alex chavez's dwarves the next year brad mckay's twilight kin the year after that eric trowbridge's orcs in 2020 keith conroy's herd next year Adam Ballard's Night Stalkers last year, and then Luke Frazier's Trying to Realm this year. So I think that's a pretty good compliment to the game that 
uh, a different faction each year comes out on top and, and not often what you think of as, as the power factions, which um, I think is great. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. Not only are we not seeing factions repeat within the year, looking at those years, there was really, I'm trying to think like what we're go- what going into that was either a favorite list or a dominant list or the boogeyman list that actually ended up winning. To me, it's 2019 Brad McKay, right? Other than that, I can't think of any of the U.S. Masters who won taking a list that was the boogeyman list going into that event. Yeah, maybe arguably Adam Ballard's Night Stalkers last year. That's a close second. Going in, we knew that Night Stalkers were really, really good. I think Brad's Twilightkin was probably on, on another level, even from Adam's Night Stalkers. But those are the two I'd put as lists that people were talking about going in that ended up winning it all. Other than that, I mean, I don't think anybody was picking Luke. Luke wasn't picking Luke. Luke wasn't picking Luke. If you heard our chatter with him, you know, on Sunday morning, 3-0, I mean, I think he was as surprised as anybody that, look, he did what he needed to do to prepare. He played good games. He got matchups and, you know, potentially matchups in his favor. And he played to the scenario. And I think he had a list that kind of, a la Keith Conroy, it kind of caught a few people out. There's a couple tricks in that list. Yeah, I mean, he got good matchups and in good snares, just like every other single master did. Like, it winning big tournaments is all about getting the right matchups and then capitalizing on that by playing extremely well, which which he did. So, there's no shame in saying he got a couple of good matchups because every single other ma- master did as well. Yeah, I mean, I think at this point we all gone around that chestnut. We we've all done ring a Rosie, ring around the Rosie around that bonfire, right? Which is to win a Masters, you need a lot of things to go your way. You have to have dice go your way. You have to have the matchups go your way. That that to me, I think, is a pretty understood thing at this point, right? One of the other observations you've you've made, Tom, there's a lot of parity here. You could argue when we were playing in Nashville, best player to the worst player out of those sixty four, the skill gap was large, right? We had some people that were just happy to be there. But I think now when you look at the quality of play in 2023, I would say the skill gap has decreased substantially. It's getting harder and harder to win the Masters because the quality of play from top to bottom is going up. Yeah, I don't know if we're ever going to have a repeat. To me, to think about repeating as master is just like, it's that meme, right? When you're trying to do all the math and the triangle and the angles, to think about what has to go your way. I mean, the closest thing that I can think of when Pat went 6-0, I believe the next year in Chicago, he won his first four games and then lost in game five. So he had gone 10-0 and 0 at the Masters. And as far as I know, that's, I think, one of the best like two-year... Maybe now we can talk about uh, uh, Nathan Clevenger, right? He ended up on the top table two Masters in a row, which is pretty uh, a pretty big deal. But, I mean, do you think we're ever going to see like a, re- a, a repeat Master? I mean, I don't know. That seems really hard. It would not surprise me. I think a couple have gotten close, even of the guys who haven't won it, like Jeff Shilkin, for example, he's been second twice now, at least Travis Tim. He wasn't there this year. I mean, he was there, but he wasn't playing. He's been second at least twice. It wouldn't surprise me, um, but it's definitely the exception. We just have so many good players in Kings right now. And I think what Rob, what you're talking about, the numbers uh, of games where the one with 18, 19, 20, 21 points. Very, very few. Um, I don't have the exact number, but I remember it was something around maybe 20, 
20 high scoring, just uh, you'd call them blowouts, I guess. A lot of parody, very few big wins, which is what you'd expect. Yeah. And I'm looking at the list. We've only had one region have a repeat winner, right? Like, so obviously Patrick Allen and Brad McKay are both from the South, but the other five people are from other regions. Yeah. West hasn't had one and Southeast, the Southeast. Yeah. But the Southeast had four of the top 10 battle this year. So they're certainly not lacking for, for people who could win masters. Well, the joke is they usually knock themselves out in round five. Right. I think Luke tells us that to get to masters, you have to have a certain level of skill if you're at Masters for the most part. So will we have a Master come out of the West? Southeast, I think, obviously. But I think we'll have a West Master at some point, too. I think just the level of skill, rising tides lift all ships. I think just the level of skill across the country. I don't know what you would say to that, Tom, but I think we used to have more skill hotspots. The good players were maybe more in certain areas of the country, but I don't think that's the case anymore. I think we have great players all over the country now. Yeah, I think that the South got a jump start because all the TOs, when we switched over from Warhammer, got together and decided to move to Kings and Mass. So it was basically like, we're all going to sign the game and we're all going to do that game. And I think that gave the South a big advantage because some other regions didn't have that. They had some groups go with Kings and some groups go with AOS and and some regions like the Pacific Northwest just didn't have a scene for how many years, you know? And it took it took a couple of years to build that scene up. But you're right, Jeremy, that especially since we're so connected with the internet, with Facebook, with Discord, with UB, everybody that wants to kind of jump into that top competitive layer, you know, you have a lot of opportunities to discuss ideas and get better quickly, I think. No, you bring up a great point, right, Rob? Because we have, what do we have? We have Dash 28 now that's matured, right? We have Countercharge direct misfire, Paige Neo doing his tutorials. You know, I think the the corpus, our body of material to get good at the game, it's compared to three or four years ago, is completely different. Yeah, if you compare today to 2017, it's completely different. Just think about the number of mercs that we had to have in 2017. There were more opportunities than we had people, so we had to really dig deep. Uh, and now, you know, with the best of the rest invention in coming out of New York, the greatest thing that's happened to the Masters you have a built-in pool of talented players that are already there with lists submitted, so it's really easy to slide somebody over. And I, and I think the last few Masters that where we've had that, especially I think this one in New York, those best of the rest tournaments were great because they were they were large, they were forty plus. You usually are going to have some last minute drops. Just it's that's just travel, and uh, it was great to have quality players in twenty seventeen. We did have a lot of twenty O's because the skill gap from some of the players was really really large. You mentioned it. There, there's a lot of draws in this master, a lot of close games. It just goes to the parody of the game. Well, and I think also what's happened is the existing player base has gotten better at the game. You know, I saw a comment today that Jeff Radigan was talking on Facebook. He was he was saying, you know, imagine if we were as good as we are now with using second edition rules with nimble dracons and Alohi and, you know, bane chanting archers and all of that, like the top, you know, I, I just think as a community, we've gotten much better. It also reminds me of another thing that Aaron Chapman in my region said once. He also plays 40K and he used to say the 40K players, they know 40K so much better than the Kings players know Kings. And he's like, it's just, it's amazing how much they know about the game. And I think that we as a community are catching up there and, 
And so I think that's another factor is everybody's just getting better at the game. Yeah, I think when we first started playing, a lot of people brought in how they played Warhammer Fantasy and took that skill set and sort of dropped it into Kings of War. And it's a different game, right? It's a different game system, right, Rob? You lose a lot of games when you do that because this is not Warhammer. What you bring up is a really interesting point, Tom. It's taken some time to think about, and we talk about it, right? We talk about it, grind, alpha, really think about what is the sort of King's pyramid of play styles and how do those play styles work and in Kings, right? Because you have, you have those play styles in other game systems, right? But how do those play styles within the King's ecosystem, how do they interact? How do they work? We have a different style of army balancing too, right? Where we don't have that monthly army book. We have a once a year update. But I think this again shows in sort of the variety of lists and the parity, the system that we do exist within of that once a year bigger update, it still is creating new armies, new players, still breathing good life into the game. You know, there's been some discussion recently on Facebook about about balance and kings. And, you know, all I can say to that is look at the master's results. I mean, what a great advertisement that is to new players to say, you know, play the army you want and it can do well. It can be competitive. I mean, in the top 10 battle, one faction was repeated twice and that was ogres. Uh, but other than that, the, the top 10 were all different factions. The top 15, I think maybe you had one one more repeat with two elves. I don't know. I think you're right, Jeremy. It's just the, the results speak for themselves in a lot of ways. Maybe you guys can speak to the effect that the maturity of scoring systems over the years has on the parity that we're seeing. Because, you know, when we played in 2017, we were using a win-loss draw with some attrition. But now with Blackjack or even Northern Kings or whatever, it feels like those scoring systems do a better job of approximating what result the result on the table. And it allows you to have very, a little bit more granularity than we, we had in the past. And so I wonder if that also is playing into some of the, the, the parity that we're seeing. Yeah, I think so. I, with the exception of Northern Kings last year, which we used for Masters, Adam kind of ran away with it. I, I did a little bit of um, analysis of how many points previous Masters have, have gotten, you know, percentage-wise in their wins. And generally it's around 80% of the total points, whether that's, you know, for Blackjack or or what. Adam was the exception. He got 95% of the available points in his win. He only... Out of 150 points uh, available, he got 143. Well, I blame myself for that since I played him in round three and he zeroed me. So part of that is my fault. <laughs> I'm glad you own up to it. We know who to blame for that nonsense is you blame this guy right here. So continue. <laughs> That'd be interesting. Has anybody repeated as sort of a, a master's victim, you know, on their march to six and zero or whatever? You're like the trampoline, you know, who is the, who is the fluffer of all the masters? You know, who is the one who's getting, you know, the masters where they need to be. But what I was going to say is more masters now have won with either a draw or a loss than have gone six and zero. So Brad, Eric, and now Luke all had a draw and Keith Conroy actually had a loss in the last round of Travis Tim. Um, and then Patrick Zoro Allen, Alex Chavez, and Adam last year all all went undefeated. But that's I think it's really interesting um, that you don't need to go six and nine, which we've said before. And I think that's a good that's a good lesson to future Masters players is never give up. If you get a draw in the second round, 
your run's not over. Yes. You know, keep grinding, keep playing. You make a fantastic point, Tom. And I think, Rob, what you're talking about is the score systems that are more about giving you credit and trying to capture that how big a win it was or how big a loss it was. I think that that has helped us get to this point of really close games and close scoring systems and a system where, you know, you can win with a loss or draw, like Tom said. And I think that's a good skill. I love to try to highlight when we're having conversations because people ask a lot, like, how do I become better? And playing to the scenario and trying to turn a loss into as small a loss as possible is another skill that you develop for you. I call it like your tournament skill set, right? Like you have your game skill set. Like how do I play in a game? But right, Tom, there's a whole skill set of how do you navigate a tournament, right? Making sure you get enough sleep, all the physical stuff of a tournament. Think about when do I take a draw or how do I, you know, play a scenario to make make my loss not as big. Um, I think that skill set's become a little bit more refined maybe too for some players. How do I navigate a tournament? Yeah, and that's that's something that, you know, I had to have taught to me when I was starting out. I had no idea. And and Dustin was the one who told me you need to treat the entire tournament as a competition. The competition's not just game after game after game. It's the entire entire thing. And so, you know, like, for example, when you're playing against a heavy shooting list, often the best uh, option is to play for the draw. How do you beat a heavy shooting list? Sometimes you just don't. You, you just got to draw and move on. So yeah, I think you're right. That's that's a skill in blackjack. It, it has been said it's it's the worst scoring system except for all the others that we've tried. I always think of that quote: "Democracy, it's the best worst form of government that we like have come up with." It's I think that's true. Someone is alive today who's going to write the best scoring system for Kings of War, but maybe he's like a little infant or he or she. Because I don't think we figured it out yet, Rob. I don't think we have the perfect scoring system yet. No, we don't. And refresh my memory. When did we trigger? When did we switch to using blackjack? Because I know we didn't use it in Seattle, but I think we've used it for, for a few years before that, right? We did not use it the first two years. Did we use blackjack for Brad McKay in San Antonio? Yep, that was the first year. Because what I, I'm looking at your stats here, what's interesting is it looks outside of the outlier Adam, the last three out of the last four, they're percentage of points accumulated is lower than 80%. Let's be honest, the Brad McKay thing going 5-0-1, he didn't really have to play his last game. His opponent just gave him the, the draw. Had he played, he would have he would be 6-0. Let's be honest about that. The other player just basically stood back and just said, I'm taking a draw. You're right. And that, that's just another measure of how competitive and sort of the parody that we've been talking about is. Because, yeah, like Eric uh, Trowbridge, he only got 75% of the available points. Keith Conroy only got, you know, right under that at 74. And then Luke is, you know, bang on average at just under 80%. But there's nobody running away with it um, ever. And so I think, yeah, it just speaks to what a tough, uh, tough room masters is and how good people are, especially at the top. One of the wild cards, and I think it was when we had done, I know on some matchups and when we had done some streaming, and I know it was uh, during the Scrying Gems. What do you think about the sort of uh, the rookie element? We have rookies every Masters, but this Masters was seemed a little bit more, uh, you know, we had more rookies. What do you think about that, about f- the, going to the Masters for the first time? Or how does that sort of fit into the sort of narrative of of Masters? One of the big narratives if not the biggest is how well the rookies did. Um, 
almost one third of the field were first time masters players. And, you know, a lot of that was because the Northeast and the mid Atlantic had, had trouble and had to go down into their, um, you know, into their roster, but that gave a lot of new people opportunities. And those new people did great. There were 18 rookies, like I said, and more finished in the top half of the tournament than finished in the bottom half. I think it was 10 that finished in the top half and eight that finished in the bottom half. Incredibly for the top 10 finishers were rookies. Yeah, that's mind blowing. It really is. Sean Troy from uh, the Midwest, Justin Robbins from the South, Kevin Drury from the Southeast, who I had the opportunity to have dinner with and is just a great guy. And then Eric Schaefer, who I had the pleasure of losing to in round five um, out of the Mid-Atlantic, all finished top 10. Super impressive. We used to say, and you and I have said this on air many times, Tom, no way a first time or a rookie master. No, you just can't do it, right? The tournament's too hard. It's too stressful. But I think we're beginning to see maybe that people now are getting the experience against top players, not just at masters, right? They're going to other tournaments or the sort of other tournaments within the master scene. Those are also maturing and evolving with top level play. I mean, do you think there's anything involved with not just masters changing, but the tournament scene as a whole growing and maturing that we're seeing then that people fed into masters then or have those skills or speak to that a little bit. I think what it is, is just, and we said this on the scrying gems pre masters episode is the regions are just getting deeper. There's more masters. I hate the term, but but master level players who are ready if they get the opportunity to, to go to masters and perform well, that's what this really tells me is, you know, like Eric Schaefer, uh, I'm not sh- exactly sure where he finished, but he's an amazing player and he is definitely a masters player. Um, even if he's never been before Sean Troy, we Rob, you know, I know he, when he plays Kings of war, he wins. <laughs> he was, you know, he's the rookie of the year this year. He was top, you know, I think he's fifth in battle. And so, the regions are just getting deeper. And I think that is what you're talking about, Jeremy, is going to more tournaments, getting connected with other players, and just just getting better overall. It used to be clubs. You'd have a club, and we still have that, right? But I think also we're beginning to break boundaries. And I know there's a lot of think tanks and chat groups that are beyond just your your geographical space. I think the internet, you spoke to it a little bit about how the the nature of the beast has sort of changed. But I think that's true, right? Is that players are not only talking with their geographical club. I mean, I'm playing people on UB from all over, right? Or having swapping lists on the internet. I think there's definitely more like the sort of town square of Kings doesn't know borders, right? I think that's right. And we always say what a great community we have with Kings. Well, one extension of that is the really good players are really willing to give back and and go on podcasts and talk about things like the series that you guys just had with the uh, with the scenarios. That was amazing, where you had all masters or former masters players coming on and you know just giving back and spilling their darkest secrets. They're not trying to trying to keep things to themselves, um, and I think you see that across the community. I try to do that a lot by writing articles and you know, sharing lists freely, list ideas. And so I think that's absolutely a thing. And just another, another 
way we have a great community. Rob, do you think since Kings is less about like weird interactions or gotchas that you've come up with, that there's less gatekeeping around what's good and people are more willing to share good lists or good ideas? I've long been a proponent that, that you know, we're not a gotcha game and other games like Age of Sigmar is. But I had a good conversation, which you may or may not have listened to yet, with Patrick Brindleson, who is a hardcore AOS player from northern Minnesota. And I've known Patrick a long time, and he made the comment that really stuck out to me. He goes, it's really not the AOS is a gotcha game. It's that the spikes are so much harder. You get the double turn and you get you get the, you, you get knockout punches. We don't have those hard spikes. I, OK, you could argue the, the double one in a very key moment could be a, a spike. But those are unusual and those are not predictable. In our game, it's about deployment and movement. I also think it's very hard to netlist in our game. Sure, you 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 want to take Jeff Radigan's list, eight scorching hordes. I would be terrible at it because I would overcommit at the wrong time. I wouldn't pick the right targets. Tom, maybe you could speak to this. The winning armies have an element of shooting in them, but typically the gun lines don't win the events, right? They, they don't typically, because usually they're, it's a skew list. You're going to hit a hard counter. Yeah. Well, I, I think, I think you're right. Um, shooting lists, at least in Kings are very swingy. So you're going to have two games where your shooting does amazing, two games where it does average and two games where it sucks and the games that it suck, you're probably going to lose. And so uh, Kings, I think rewards balanced lists because of the focus on scenario. So you can't just, just play, a super skew list, you know, even the scorch wings, it's not really a shoot you off the table list. It's, I have a lot of shooting, but also a lot of fast combat that all has pathfinder and can get everywhere at the end of the game, you know, turn 20 and, and fly, even if it's into a forest. Um, and so I, I think that's right. Um, I also think they're just, you know, you don't need to buy a codex for each army. There's not gatekeeping in the sense of financial gatekeeping. Buy the one book or the companion and you've got all the information you need. Right. And all the rules are, you know, the special rules are pretty much the same. I mean, you know, across armies, there's not that much to learn that way as far as, far as tricky interactions. There's a few lists and kings that you know, are a few factions that are a little weird. Um, and mostly because they're not played that heavily. Um, but but really, the, the only thing holding you back from being really good is practice and knowledge about movement and, and scenario. I think the final level is learning how to play the scenarios. That's like the final frontier and becoming a really good player and understanding what you have to do in a scenario based on the matchup, your list and the list you're matching up against. That's like the last level in Kings. But you can, you can get good at that pretty quickly which as, as, you know, the, the performance by the, the quote unquote rookies this year just proved so. Yeah, I think that's true, right? You have sort of like the different spheres as you're as you're coming of just like understanding uh, the rules, right? Understanding what your army does. And then as you kind of go down and down and down, as you get closer to those sort of nucleus of being good play, I think we always end up back in that same point, right? Is the scenario, how important the scenario is. And that's probably what I love most about Kings is it is a scenario-based game where you have to really... Adding that extra flavor of not just trying to kill your opponent, but thinking about how do I play the scenario? And I, I think if you look at the people who do well at Masters, that would be a skill that they're really good at, right? It's not just about how do I kill you. It's how does my army function? What do I need to do to win a scenario? 
Rob, I think you you were asking uh, at the event on one of the the casts why were there so many draws in Invade, for example, and it's because the good players understand in Invade you don't split your army, you you don't have to, you can keep it all together, and you do the toilet bowl thing. That is probably the correct quote unquote way to play, but it does lead to more draws, and so when you have two players that understand how to try to win the scenario, sometimes that leads to more draws at at the high, higher levels, I guess. So do you want to pick up, uh, Tom, do you think there was any really significant games at Masters or sort of matchups, whether, you know, no matter what round they were from, but maybe some wins or ties or whatever that really stood out to you as sort of defining moments of this year's Masters? Yeah, so I, I will start with uh, just a, a single interesting statistic. So I had uh, Mike Grant was helping me do some of the the post uh, statistical analysis. And so he somehow gave a, a player rating to each player based on how you did during the tournament. And then you can kind of look ret- retroactively and see how tough were your games based on the, the opponents that you played and how they finished sort of like a, a strength of schedule type thing. And so when you look at that, the biggest upset in the entire tournament across all six rounds uh, goes to Andrew Mitten, who beat Eric Schaefer uh, in round one. And that was the biggest discrepancy between between ratings, so to speak. I know there's a question on Facebook about what, what the biggest upsets were. Statistically, that was the biggest upset. A betting man would have would have put their money on Eric. Uh, like I said, he beat me. He kicked the crap out of me. He, <laughs> so he was great. He finished tied for 10th with uh, his other, other dirty elf brother, uh, Keith Randall. So he had a great tournament. No shame there. But yeah, just kind of interesting. And I did also look back at, you know, what took down some of these boogeyman lists? That's kind of the question I was wondering. What, who, you know, obviously the Scorch Wings didn't win. How, who took them down? The nasty ogre list of uh, Jeff Shilkin didn't win. Who took him down? And so um, I looked back and so I have I have five games that stood out to me. Mostly they are who gave the players in the top, you know, five or six in battle their their one loss or their one draw. And so kind of <clears throat> reverse order. Um, number five was a round three game between Dale Motley and Sean Troy. Um, who we talked about a little bit already tonight and Dale beat Sean in a close game, uh, 14, seven, I think round three was plunder with the five loot tokens. And so that, that was Sean's only loss. He, he finished fifth in battle. The fourth most significant game, so to speak, was another round three game where Nathan Clevenger beat Justin Robbins, 18 to three. Um, and that was Justin's only loss. And Justin, those those two guys, by the way, Sean and Justin, were both rookies in their fifth and sixth in battle. Um, so that was Justin's only loss. And then round three is, uh, I'd say, the third most significant game. Jeff Shilkin beat Jeff Radigan with, this, with the eight Scorching Hordes um, in a, another very close game, 14-7 straight up. And that was Jeff Radigan's only loss. He finished third over third in battle. Next is another Jeff Shilkin game in the next round where he tied with Keith Randall. That was Jeff did not have a loss. Um, that was the game though, that knocked him probably knocked him out of the top spot. It's Jeff's only tie and Jeff Shilkin finished second in battle. And then finally, unsurprisingly 
the most significant game was round six, Luke Frazier beating Nathan Covinger 16 to five in a salt to earth scenario. And that was Nathan's only loss. Uh, he, he dropped a fourth with that, but still top five, awesome, awesome tournament. And the, obviously that's the game that made Luke the master. So those are kind of the games that stood out to me as, as being the most significant looking back on things. And Luke Frazier going in had one draw and Nathan was undefeated, but they were they were tied on points, if I recall correctly. Yeah, they were tied and Marcelo and Jeff Radigan were eight points behind on the table, too. And shout out to Matt Carmack. You can still watch the commentary on his uh, YouTube slash Twitch channel. And what's great about the stream is that there, you're going to see a lot of different play styles and you're going to see a lot of different play styles played at high level. There's some great games with dwarves. There's some great alpha games with Marcelo. Some great melee punchy games like that last game with Luke and Nathan. So if you're wanting to take a look at like different styles of play at that top level, over the um, aggregate of both days of streaming, you're going to find a nice variety of uh, play styles and and armies. I find it interesting that in the five games that Tom pointed out, there are three games that have Southeast players involved. And Nathan's in two of them. Yep. Yep. Well, that's, yeah, that's because they, four of them finished in the top 10 and they were, I mean, they, they destroyed this tournament. They, I think, I think another thing we should mention is how close the regions were in battle. This was the first year that the South was dethroned after winning best uh, team battle for six straight masters. The Midwest finally tripped, tripped us up and got us with a, a great team, but the rest of the regions were really close. I mean, even the South, who was fourth in battle, was only, I think, 20 points back from the Midwest. And and so the South Lease and the Mid-Atlantic, was they were both right in there as well. So just just another measure of, of the parity we've been talking about tonight, this time you know between regions. You look at Jeff Shilkin versus Jeff Radigan in that game, right? That's probably a tough matchup for, for, for Jeff Radigan, right? Jeff Shilkin's playing the shooty ogre. So Scorch, you know, he's got 24-inch counter shooting compared to Jeff's 18-inch shooting. Yep, he's got stealthy defense six siege breakers, which, you know, non-piercing shooting does not want to play against. He's got to do nothing against. So again, we see Jeff's Radigan's only loss came by the sort of the minutia of tournaments pairing. He got matched up against a, a, a tough list. Whereas Luke Frazier getting Nathan, what does Trident Realms want to see? And I know that they want to see this after playing against them a lot as an undead player. They want to see Melee that hits on fours. Please, all day long, bring it to me, Papa. Luke playing Nathan in the last round versus Luke playing Jeff Radigan in the last round. Maybe we have a different US Master, right? So we're seeing the importance of matchups in throughout this this list of really interesting games right and luke who by the way gave a great interview with you rob i really enjoyed that that was that was a great episode and he i unfortunately didn't really get a chance to talk to him but he seems like a great guy and i'm definitely going to make it a point next time we're together um but he you know he said it himself and i think it's right if you ran this tournament 10 times we'd probably have eight nine or ten different winners it's just it's just all matchups, small, you know, small things like Nathan's offense hits on fours and the Bloodworms or Blood Bloodworm Legions, and Luke has a bunch of ensnare. So, just the the quirks of the matchups is is really what um, big large tournaments with a lot of great players is ultimately comes down to. I think. Every one of those games, those players made mistakes. 
It's the degree of the mistake. The bigger the mistake, those are going to hurt you more. You know, you mentioned scenarios before. The game is all about movement and deployment, but it's movement and deployment in pursuit of the victory of the scenario, right? Like it's all about that. It's a skill that many people are gaining. Yeah, especially as more people share their knowledge and, and uh, you know, it gets spread across the community. After playing in a lot of tournaments, I'm curious what you think, Tom. I feel sometimes in tournaments, there's like a, piv- a pivotal moment you can go and look back at where it feels like it's a kind of like a turning point for you in that event. Like the one role that went your way and it just, and one example, I think, and I'm going to use it because it involves me beating you, <laughs> was at that New York Masters, right? You and I are on a similar trajectory, very close play style, playing similar armies, right? We have a razor thin game. And it comes down to if there's a turn seven, I win. If there's no turn seven, you win. Simple as that. One roll. Yep. I got the roll and I won. And in many ways, our, our paths sort of diverged at that moment and ended up having kind of similar records, but opposite of each other. Whereas I don't know what you feel about that, but does that happen sometimes in a tournament where you can sort of trade? It's like there's this one pivotal key moment that sort of defines your your tournament life? Yeah, I think so. I, th- I mean, I had it with um, in my round two against uh, Jared Holcomb, who won best sports and got my sports vote, even though he's playing disgusting goblins. He's just, he's so funny though. You know, that's the example of what you're talking about. It was a control scenario, which, you know, we're, my sort of take on doors was similar to a goblin list or a ratkin list. And, you know, obviously goblins love control. And so, it was a close game and it came down to that same thing. Turn six, I draw and turn seven, I win and we didn't get a seven. So yeah, I, I think that that sort of story of mine is repeated 63 times across the other, the other players. They each have their own individual stories that don't get captured by these sort of big statistics, but that, that makes up a tournament. You guys mentioned that key moment, that key role. What we often miss, though, is that you guys played a strategy that brought you to that point. So you may be playing for a turn six. You may be playing for a turn seven, you know, in in the strategy that you're playing on the table. It was in your control, right? And you decided that we're going to play for a turn six. And then when you get a turn seven, it's it's over. So it feels like, yeah, it could turn on that one, that one dice roll. But you had a lot of player agency to get to that point. You know, every master that gets interviewed says the same thing. I didn't really have any bad luck. You know, I I didn't have maybe great luck, but I had average luck. And that's that's all you can ask for um, when you're playing Kings. Yeah, because usually the better you are, you're making decisions based on uh, wanting to wanting to need slightly below average, right? For uh, something good to happen. You're shooting for combats or whatever, that all things are equal. I'm going to have a average roll of a four or five or whatever to break a unit. So in general, if your dice rolling goes to average, you usually do well, right? Because that's what you're trying to set up for. If the variance is average, you're in a winning position. Right. You guys want to know what I think the most unlucky matchup was across yes. the whole tournament? Yeah. Go for it. So so round one, Eric Trowbridge had to play Keith Randall and lost in a close game. And Alex Chavez had to play Jeff Radigan, also a close game that uh, Jeff was able to pull out over Alex. Round two, after taking that abuse, uh, Alex gets paired up, paired up with Eric. In round oh, two. oh my gosh! And it's just like your uh, reward for going up against some of the nastiest lists is playing another former U.S. Master in round two. And like you said, that's a turning point for them for their whole tournament. 
wasn't there one Masters, Tom, or was it a Lone Wolf? Remind me where uh, someone lost their first two games and then was playing Dustin Howard. Yeah, that was the Dallas Masters. Where, oh, dude. <laughs> yeah, where I think it may have been Blake uh, from your region. It probably is someone because I'm remembering the story of like, hey, Jeremy, I've lost first my, my first two games. Guess who my round three opponent is? Because Dustin had lost to Jason Britt in the first round. Yep, and then to Shannon Shoemaker in the second round. We kind of touched on score swings. And, you know, one of the questions that Matthew Temple had was, you know, what percentage of top 15 has scorch wings? I know we don't have that exact number, but outside of Jeff Radigan with the eight hordes, how many lists did have scorch wings? And was there a bunch of these guys up at the top? There were a few. So Garrett uh, Mercier, I know he finished, let's see, 16th in battle. Um, So excellent finish. And he had, I think, three hordes of scorch wings. Jordan Braun, another rookie from the South region, he finished 13th in battle. He had two hordes. He was he was my second of two losses. Um, he had an excellent list, but he wasn't spamming them. He was just, I think he had two, two hordes and one regiment or something. So he had three greater errors, so he wasn't taking a soft list or anything. But, uh, but really, I mean, they they were popular in the list that could take them, but. I wouldn't say they sort of dominated the tournament or anything. We've had lots of discussions on this. The difference between the effect of Scorch Wings in the Masters room versus Scorch Wings in the best of the rest room, they can be a player skill gap mitigator. Typically, that's going to be at the lower end or the mid tables. Like Alex Chavez, he knew what he had to do to try to win it. And, and I think if you listen to their interview, Alex had a shot. He was in the game. Absolutely. I mean, that's a tough list, extremely tough list, eight Scorch Wings. I, I've played it multiple times and and even beat it, but uh, in practice games, that's not a list you're going to win, you know, half the games against. That's you're going to win 20% of your games, maybe, um, depending on the scenario. So it's not, not to downplay how silly that list was or anything, but at this level of competition, you have players who aren't just their brain doesn't immediately just lock up and say, you know, Oh my goodness, I don't know what I'm going to do against this list or I'm screwed. I'm just going to quit. A lot of them, myself included view that as a great, great challenge and have fun with it. I'm curious, Tom, Rob's mentioned this before. Sometimes the most vocal expressions of frustration around balance, you don't hear that as much from like the top level of player. Do you think that comes from, the more you learn about the game, the more you realize any list is beatable. Or do you think there's a, a, a certain element of being a top player where you just accept every six months something's going to be really good and that's just the nature of the beast is a little bit uh, from uh, column A, a little bit from column B? Or what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I my theory is the most competitive players are the ones who are most willing to switch armies, you know, build new armies or build new units to to fit the current meta. And so they've already kind of factored that in, you know, oh, this list exists. I'm going to have to, I want to be competitive. I have to make this change. And so they've already kind of factored that into the armor they're taking. Whereas other people who aren't willing to do that sort of crazy build a new army just to build the most powerful thing, they want to take what they've painted and what they want to play with. And if they feel like other people are taking advantage of a, of an imbalance, they get, probably more upset than than the guys. I don't think it's necessarily because you have the skill to face it down. I think it's more just you accept that's a part of the game and you're you're crazy so you're willing to 
to build and paint to to meet that challenge. The other thing that you could that we brought up is that there's a difference between balance and whether or not it's fun to play against. You know, it may not be a balance issue. It may just I don't want to play against Jeff Radigan's list. There's certain skew mm-hmm. lists I just would prefer not to play. I think they would not be as fun. So that might also be entering into it. And it's maybe not coming from a place of, well, this is unbalanced. It's just not fun to play against. And that's that's a perfectly valid feeling to have because yeah. we're not all here to win the Masters. No. And there could be times, like Tom said, sometimes maybe your list is a round peg and the meta is a square hole. Or maybe sometimes the list that you played forever is a square peg and the meta currently is a round hole. And a good player will just get rid of his square peg and make a round, a round peg, right? And I, maybe some of that frustration is those players aren't doing that. And instead, they're trying to shove their square peg into a round hole. And because there are times where sometimes a list just won't work. It doesn't mean that that faction doesn't have something else to explore or that you can't, any faction can win at any time. But maybe your version, like your hard painted, the army you love, it just doesn't quite work as well. And I wonder if, if that's sort of a launching point for that frustration to maybe build from. Yeah, I think that's right. And something that I saw Tom Robinson say today on Facebook, you know, in sort of a thread discussing balance between the factions, he said, it's not that the factions are imbalanced. It's that the meta may force you towards certain choices within whatever your desired faction is. And that may not be what you want to play. You might want to play, you know, slow combat goblins or something. You want to take a bunch of luggets and trolls and things. In a certain type of meta, that may be fine. But in the meta that exists at the top of the U.S. Masters, that that list is not going to work. And so I think that's, when you're talking about faction imbalance or frustration with potential imbalance, I think that's that's a lot of it. It's you can, This Masters, again, proves you can take whatever armor you want. It's just that you need to build in the right tools in whatever faction to deal with the the meta that you're presented, not what you wish other people, you know, wish the meta would be, I guess. If you look at the winners of the Masters, I think you can go through the list and you can figure out who is building something and playing something counter to what we expect. And the ones that were leaning into it, I mean, the, the leaning into Brad McKay, Adam Baylor, right? Like 100% and, and even Alex Chavez to a lesser extent, right? Those guys knew the armies were great. And they played the hell out of them. Oh, yeah. The Steel Behemoth, right, was so good, at, you know, going into that Chicago Masters, right? But then you look at Keith Conroy, Luke Frazier playing some oddball lists, right? And you could argue that no one would have predicted those armies to win. But, right, they're great players. And they just got, you know, things fell in their way. And voila. Yeah, like a perfect example, I think, of what you're saying, Tom, is... Let's look at Basalia trademark. Our first mistress, the girl the, that we brought to the dance that we like no longer are dancing with at the moment. Right. We only saw one Basalian list, right? And the list we saw was straight up alpha speed. You did have Grant Fetter that was added to the event after the fact, but he's also got a lot of Aloha as well. That's what I'm saying. Did we see sisterhood in Basalian lists at US Masters? No. It doesn't mean that Basalia is not a good list and you can't have a competitive build. But if you're a sisterhood or an infantry, or you're the type of player who wants to play Baselia uh, a different way, it's going to feel frustrating because you can't play the army the way that you want. doesn't mean the game is not balanced, but I think that's the challenge of balance, right? Having the factions balanced, but also maybe having the factions have multiple ways to be balanced. And that becomes so tough. Well, internal balance within the list. And and I know that's what some of these adjustments are working on, trying to make sure there's multiple builds so that you don't have to play 
a specific build balances for weenies. And uh, that's that's a quote from the designer of Cosmic Encounters. And it's like, you know, there's some truth to that. Like, <laughs> if you have the cojones to, to, to try it out and, and actually get good at it, you can catch some people off. I mean, Luke Frazier to that. How many players did he play against that didn't know what some of that stuff was going to do? Right? Yeah, they have the stats in front of them, but if you don't get the reps in because nobody's playing it in your area, and let's be let's be honest, Trying Realms is not a super common army. It's not at all, and it's one that's just so inherently strange. It is a weird list, right? It does a lot of weird things. It has weird name. It's like you you don't know what any of the stuff does, and it's one that people use lots of different models for too. I think sometimes we used to have this with Night Stalkers, right? Before we we had a lot of kings, where you'd place a you face a Night Stalker unit, and not only do you not understand what any of it does, you're playing against clowns, which are awesome great night soccer army are you playing against this or uh demon oni and you're just like what the hell i don't know what any of this does well what i think is interesting looking at luke's list and and this is something that i want to try to explore in, in some articles in dash 28 but looking at the evolution of the factions throughout you know maybe second half of second edition to to where they are now because what I notice when I look at Luke's list is it's like every cycle, every balance cycle, you know, they tried to bring Trident Realms up a little bit. They didn't work. So they tried, you know, another thing didn't work, you know, to kind of launch them. And still today, it's not like they're a power faction or anything, but they got just enough to where when you add it all together, you come up with a master's winning list. Like, for example, you know, they added the Thule um, formation uh, one or two clash cycles ago. That's an amazing formation. Um, Host Shadow Beats just got added. I, I'm i embarrassed that I didn't think about this, but how amazing is Host Shadow Beast on a, uh, a Thule um, Mythican? Like an already awesome combat hero who just gets more attacks that, uh, you know, that are really, really powerful. That's a great combination that didn't exist even one cycle ago. Um, you know, the the Coral Giant, I don't think it had Ensnare for a long time. It got Ensnare. And these are things you don't notice until, or unless you're sort of paying attention throughout the couple-year life cycle of the game. But, you know, I remember when Knuckers didn't have Stealthy and they were just arrow cushions. But so I'm I'm looking at his list and I'm remembering all the things that the RC has done over the years to bring up Trident Realms. And it's like, it's finally bearing fruit. Talk to me about formations in terms of the amount of formations at the event. Is there anything in the tea leaves we can discern from that? Yeah, I think some of the formations are obviously too good. Like the elf formation is an auto take even, you know, no shame, but the Trident Realm internally, internal balance wise there's never a reason to not take it. You'd always take that formation. There's a few that just just people take because they're obvious, but there's not that many of those, I don't think. I think the elves and, and the Trident Realms are only two that really come to my mind. Even the dwarf one, which is excellent, only got taken in, in half of the lists. Back in the day, like some of those formations were broken, you know, and now we're talking about, okay, we have a couple that maybe are a little too good. So, uh, you know, I, th- I, think, I think we're in a good place. I think going forward, what I've heard is Mantic wants to make the formations match whatever the ambush box is. So I think you're going to see that a lot. You will be able to build a formation from the ambush box. So you can sort of 
take your ambush force and stick it right into a king's warless without changing anything which i think is a that's smart that, that's an interesting idea yeah i do miss my uh double uh basalia formation army though it was just like you take the alohi formation you take the knight formation bob's your uncle seasoned to taste right i'm thinking you know we have bay, we have uh, uh bay of kings coming up right at 1995 and we were talking about it you know we have uh we have a West Coast chat group we call the Sweat Lodge where we're, we talk strategy. And um, I was trying to make my EOD at 1995. And I was like, I have like a thing, right? EOD mm-hmm. in 1995. Right. If you want to take all the toys, you have nothing. So I was like, oh, maybe I'll bring the uh, Basalia back. So I started to make some, so try to make a, some army lists with uh, Basalia. And it just is it's interesting how over the life cycle of the game, not only are units changing, but that ever-changing formation can totally change the face of an army, right? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And sometimes not to what you want to play. Like, I don't want to play a low-high spam, so I'm not playing base aliens because that's the best way to play them right now. Chris Bellows did ask about the tables at the event. Terrain, layout, those kind of things. Talk to me about what are some of the takeaways for you, Tom? Sure. I think overall the terrain was perfectly fine. The only real complaints I heard was some of the maps had hills and deployment zones, which some regions don't do. I understand the mountain region says, you know, get it on. It's allowed. It's fine. We do it the same thing at the Samurai Showdown. Aaron um, Chapman, who's the TO, says that's fine. You know, you can put a hill in deployment zone. Now we do have player placed terrain. So the idea is if a player puts it in a hill in the deployment zone, put a force right in front of it, you know, on your next drop. So it's a little different, but but um, so I heard that complaint. It was not every map. Maybe two of the six maps had a hill in the deployment zone that I can remember. And yeah, obviously I took advantage of it by putting, you know, I took sharpshooters in my dwarf list. They love the hills. <laughs> my opponents, not so much, you know, and then difficult, um, I guess the flat difficult terrain, like the ponds and the fields and things were maybe a little small. They had two buildings per map. One of the buildings maybe have been on the smaller side. But as far as the layout, you know, it's all about where the train is more so than the size. I think if it's in, if, a tra- if train's in the right place, it doesn't matter if it's a little bit smaller or bigger than you think it should be. But it was no different than like the at New York Masters. They had remember Jeremy those gigantic ponds like that would fill like twelve inches on the board. It's just ridiculous. And we we're like, what what is this? Yeah. So every region has flavor of their own terrain. I follow the Jeff O'Neill rule, which is terrain when you pile it all together should cover about a quarter of the board, maybe a little bit less. But if you just swish it all together, that's how you kind of know if you have enough area of terrain. I do wonder you guys maybe hit up riff on this. This masters was really good about this is the layout and it was consistent and it was designed for those scenarios. I think the next iteration of that is okay. Now let's have consistent sizes. This is what a hill should be. This is what, whatever that is. And I, and I think collectively we can maybe be more prescriptive to other people running events. Masters is the, is the great homogenous big stew, right? But you come in there and sometimes you got people that are used to playing the Northeast, big giant pieces of terrain or maybe smaller terrain. And I think if they knew going in what they were going to get, I think this was a great one because I knew the tables were all going to be the same. That, that eliminates one of the variables. But the next time is, Maybe we have, you know, so some terrain sizes that are preset that other regions can start using. Now, it's hard to do because what you're basically saying is, well, you need to redo your terrain, right? Because some regions have right, giant, right. you know, and you guys in Texas have got some 
ginormous pieces. Huge terrain, yeah. But I think we can start shifting that way. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. You know, minimum sizes or suggested sizes, something like that. Um, maybe it's adopted officially at Masters, or maybe it's just something that that we put out. Because that that question does pop up all the time on Fanatics: is how big should my terrain be? I'll talk to Mike Atkins. That might be a good Dash Twenty Eight article for us to write. It's a great idea. There are some things that are decided by the council, the Masters Council, and there's some things that are left up to the region. In your mind, Tom. Is there things maybe decided by the council that you maybe you want to see decided by the region or, or where, where do you think the region's spirit or its voice in regards to how do they want scenarios to work or how do they want terrain work? How much do we want to homogenize the masters is what I'm saying. Do we want to keep some of that individual region flair with how they like to run a tournament? Or do you think because it is the masters, we really should have more standardization? I lean more towards the standardization, which I think is happening anyway, because we are cross-pollinating and we have seven masters now of all getting together across the country and, you know, bonding and gelling and talked, working these things out. So I think we're moving closer to that. There's still quirks in every region, but, you know, one thing, Jeremy, I think would be awesome. I don't know if you you guys heard Matt Carmack's um, RC development blog, uh, video blog, I guess. If you haven't watched it yet, you should go watch it. It's really good. But it might be a good idea to do that for the Masters Council, you know, maybe on a a shorter, smaller scale, just so people understand what Masters Councils can do and what they don't do and what's up to the left up to the regions. That could be an interesting. The crib notes is the stuff that defines the master, a lot of Masters Council stuff. The thing that defines Paragon up to the region. Right. Yeah, that's a big distinction, right? How how regions score overall, which is at Ma- Masters, is called Paragon. That is like all the shades of the rainbow, right? <laughs> Wherever you go, right, Rob? We've heard the 33-33-33. We've heard the 60 battle, 20 sports, 20 paint. Well, you've had rankings, right, like in the Northeast, where it's like, I'm the 64th worst painter in the room. Right. Tom's laughing because that wasn't him, so he was happy. I, 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 yeah, I, was, in, <laughs> I was probably in the 50s, so I wasn't far behind. And sometimes you can you can figure out where you are in the country by looking at how overall is calculated, right? Because everyone has a different opinion on how to calculate that score. Soft scores are a, a contentious subject, right? Because with, with battle points, it is a direct competition. I am playing you on the table. We are competing. Sports is hard because in my mind, you're not really competing. I'm not competing against Tom for sports. I'm competing against a standard of, of, of behavior that I would like emulated and i've said this a hundred times and people are gonna go i'm tired of hearing you saying this but i do performance reviews at work right i'm not comparing amy to megan i'm comparing them to a standard and if they both get the standard then they can both get meets expectations well it's frustrating if you're a player and you get all the check boxes right you get was your opponent on time all the stuff that you have agency over as a player but you don't get those best game sports votes and all of a sudden someone who does skyrockets over you in the overall standing i'm a good use case here right i went four and one I won favorite army and I finished 19th. Take that what you will. I feel like that's one of those debates that we're just going to have forever. I don't know if what you think, Rob, are we ever going to agree on soft scores as a community? It's tough. The fundamental questions of what a soft score means to you, different regions are in different spots in their journey of enlightenment. Because I mean, ultimately, we want soft scores to encourage sporting play and people to paint their armies. It's very difficult. It's it's. It, it's the same argument where to put the masters. 
you ask 64 people where we should put the masters, you're going to get 64 different answers. The same thing with sports. It's the exact same thing. Yeah. Pain judging is the same thing, right? It is. I don't ever want to do pain judging because no matter what I do, I'm going to make somebody angry. Other than Ryan Smith, it's hard to argue that any of us are, are good. Pain. You know, Ryan's the only There's one that many, puts in yeah. the real effort where he's spending an inordinate amount of time. Days. Right. And he understands what he's looking at. A lot of times, myself included, I, I'm almost nonchalant. I'm casual. I just want to get this done. People get their feelings hurt. Very few paint judges in Ryan's caliber that who really understands the science of painting and can look at a paint style and be like, that's not my style, but I know in this style, this is a really well executed army. Like Ryan can do that, right? He can look at all the different paint styles and he can judge you based on your technical paint within that style. And just speaking for all the masters, you know, issues issues i'm air quoting here that we've had with paint where, where we had some people upset you know the first masters we took the james wapple approach which is you're judged by your worst model how does commission armies impact things because i mean i can't hire somebody to play the game for me i can't have tom stand next to me joking the guy up so that i get a better sports score right <laughs> right but i can buy a commission army <laughs> and so the question is well is that army eligible for best painted what is the contribution to overall? Those are all questions that each region has answered differently. We're in the United States. There's one thing that's guaranteed. We're never going to have a consensus. Yes, we're going we're gonna to passionately dis- disagree with each other. We're going to passionately agree to disagree, right? And, and that's fine. Yeah. And that's why sometimes the f- you're going to get those things like with Paragon. There's going to be some flavor that is influenced by the local region. You know? Fla- I like that. Regional flavor. Yeah, regional flavor. That, that is the United States way. I will say, thank thank goodness the master is not judged on, or is not uh, the Paragon winner. Uh, yeah, and the, the reality is that oh, we eliminate all subjectivity, right? It is completely 100% right. objective. Did you win your games? How many points did you score? You're the master. So in that sense, it's it's kind of a perfect tournament because that's, you know, you know I mean, if that's what we're trying to find is the best tactical general. Well, then that's what we're right. judging you on. Uh, you know, the other crazy stuff with the best of the rest or the Paragon. I mean, look, going into best of the rest, I knew it was going to be buggy year scoring. So I knew two thirds of my score are going to be soft. It'll be interesting to see what Alex and company do. I would assume that they will be in, they will make an informed decision based on their regional preference. So the things that you would find at Vanguard or Mountaineer or the Pilgrimage, those scoring systems for soft scores will be used to influence, you know, how they're going to score best of the rest. And the good news, first time ever, you have 13 months advance notice. We've never had that kind of notice before. Most of the time, it's four to six months. That's why I think this Masters coming up next year, I really feel, uh, we talked about it on our live stream, we have a chance to set the record between best of the rest and Masters together. We have plenty of time to plan. Let's make that best of the rest Let's get over 150 players between the two tournaments. That would be awesome. The 64 players for, for Masters is always going to be filled. It has. We've never not had 64 players. So really, to, to make that thing grow, it's going to be best of the rest. And we've moved this thing around different parts of the country. We've moved it to areas that have huge local populations of players, and the numbers go bigger. Moving it to where it's going in Washington, D.C., I expect 50, 60, 70. I mean, it's it's going to be big because there's the Northeast, yeah. the Southeast, the Mid-Atlantic, and even the Midwest isn't that far. Or you can certainly make the case that outside of Texas, most of the players are east of the Mississippi. Yep, that's right. Yeah. And we can make the best of the rest a marquee event. You know, it can become one of the majors, right? There's no reason why it, it, it can't be a really well-renowned, well-thought-of, prestigious event, you know? To be fair, putting it in Nova 
is giving us an opportunity we've never had before. We're in Seattle. We're in Nashville, even in Dallas. There's nobody walking by. We don't get any new players. Mm-hmm. But now we're putting it in a marquee event. There's going to be thousands of pl- people there playing other game systems. They're going to see what kind of awesome time we have. And that, that always happens when gamers from other game systems walk by. They see our room. The gentleman, Pirate Pat, who was at, at the event back here in Omaha, you know, he made a good post about that. That, hey, like this is this style of play is not typical for the other types of games that he has exhibited at. We have a great game, and I think we'll have an opportunity to sell it to a bigger, wider audience. And we're just going to keep growing because I don't know if you guys feel this, but it's growing. Yes, there may be pockets that are struggling, but overall, it's growing. I think that we need to have a demo game set up, ready to go at Nova. That has to happen. See the great the great uh, atmosphere and great community and just get them right on into a game. Need to have Mantic there with the booth. Need to have product available. I mean, all the things you would want to have. So that as soon as they see the game and they and they want to try it, you get them a game. We should make it the talk of the show, right? Like, what is this Kings of War game that there's like hundreds of people here playing? This is and they got streaming and a podcast. What's what's happening? I think it's a g- really good opportunity for us to show up at the prom in our nice new dress. Is, is Tom going to be the prom king? <laughs> <laughs> I, I heard a great uh, the best quote I heard all Masters Weekend uh, came from from Kevin Drury who uh, came over to Kings from 40k. And he said, uh, you know, and I've never played 40K, so I, I won't vouch for this, but what he said was interesting. He said, nobody goes to a 40K tournament and walks away wanting to play more 40K. People go to Kings of War tournaments wanting to play more Kings. And he's like, I can't say anything more about Kings than that. And how true is that? You know, so true. People like Kevin or Andy Patton in our area that, are, that, are, that have come to Kings from 40K or the Patrick Brindlesons that are kind of dabbling in coming over from Age of Sigmar. Those are the ambassadors we need. They still talk to those older communities. And I think as people realize, wow, you don't have to go through the grind sometimes that, that Kings War really can offer something, great tactical depth without some of the, the other wackiness that happens. Uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's, I mean, it sells itself, but you got to bring them to the table. And that's the hard part. You got to get that's them there, right. right? And once they're there, you know, if they give it a chance, a lot of them will stay. Yeah, I still swear by it. I've yet to see a player who's played Kings more than three times who doesn't get it. There's one thing you play it once or twice. Yeah. And you're like, oh, this game's super simple. But any player that I can get past like game five uh, and talking with them through the game. When we started Kings of War, everyone's like, it's never going to work. It's a Mexican standoff. You know, it's predetermined distances. Nobody will ever engage. Da 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 da. Are we talking about that now? No, so true. Tom, you got any kind of final closing thoughts on the U.S. Masters 2023 in Omaha? Yeah, I think the the Scorch Wings got the headlines going in, um, but I think coming out, it's a much different story. It's it's again like we've been talking about all night. It's it's parity whether that's between factions, between players, between regions. Uh, I think the game just is is you know it lends itself to that. It, we are getting better as a community with in all aspects. You know, on the table, sportsmanship is still the highest it's ever been. You know, I, I think everybody had a great time at masters. We had no drama other than one instance in New York. We, we haven't really ever had drama and that's the hallmark of Kings of war. And so congratulations to Luke Frazier running with Trident realms. There's uh, that's amazing. I'm so happy that that happened. And I'm just, I'm just thrilled with where Kings is right now. We've had great champions. We've, we've had great us masters. I'm excited to see who's going to win 2024. 
which is going to be in the in the Mid Atlantic, and they're going to have a great team, just like the Omaha guys had a great team. It's going to be hard for some of the lower guys to make it because when it's in your backyard, it's going to be competitive. You want to make the team, you better be in the top eight. And I think it's just such a great time to be in our hobby, right? The the uh, the new Clash is coming out soon, and it's going to be awesome. Mantix is making better models. We got the Vault, you know, so you can three D print all the hard to stuff, hard to get stuff. I just really think being into Kings of War right now to me feels like wow, it's just like a really great time to be into this game. I thought you were going to say it's the Goldilocks time. I thought that's what you were going to say. Well, I mean, it is just right, Rob. Uh, it, it, you know, you know, it, it 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 just makes sense. Yeah, it's just I think it's a, right. I think I think we're it's a really healthy, good time for our game. So to me, I'm so excited for Nova because there's no better time for us to take this game that we love to share with other people. Put it on a big stage. Yeah, it's at a great spot. Let's put it on the stage, baby. Thanks for joining us tonight. And remember, always keep countercharging. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on Countercharge. Please let us know what you thought of the show by emailing us at counterchargepodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at countercharge15, or by commenting on the Countercharge Kings of War podcast Facebook group. If you enjoy the show, you can help others find out about it by leaving positive reviews on iTunes. Until next time, keep countercharging. Music is a composition of Kevin McLeod and is licensed under Creative Commons.